Good morning and welcome again to Cross Connection Church Online. As we begin today and we come to Esther chapter three, I wanna start this morning with a question that I want you to hold in your mind for a bit. Here's the question. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you wished them harm? Just think about that for a moment. Hold it in your mind. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you wished them harm? Now, you kind of wonder what could cause you to be so angry with someone that you would wish harm upon them. I can think of a number of things and most of them would probably have to do with someone doing something malevolent or evil to my family, to my kids. What would make you so angry that you would wish someone to be harmed? Now that wish, the desire to see someone be harmed, to wish ill upon someone else, there's a word for that. It's called malice. I'm assuming that it would probably take something big to cause you to be malicious. Now, just a little bit further on this. What would happen if you not only had the desire, the malicious intent to desire harm upon someone, but you also had the, the right and the authority, the power was in your hand to not only wish harm on someone, but to actually bring it to pass. You could have your wish and your desire fulfilled. That malicious desire that you have, you had the right for it to come to pass. It was in the power of your hand to make it so. Now again, hold that in your mind because we're gonna come back to that as we go through the text that we're gonna be in today. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. I always come back to that verse just about every time that I am beginning a study of anything in the Old Testament. It is important to remember that the stories of the Old Testament are important to remember. And I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people, both those that attend church on a regular basis and those that don't really ever go to church, a lot of people know very little about the Old Testament. That's the first 39 books of scripture from Genesis to Malachi. A lot of people don't know much about that. And oftentimes I think that the stories that are written in the Old Testament, they end up being of very little value to people. Now, I know that you will probably think, well, I don't think that the stories of the Old Testament are of little value, but we really have a tendency to value them very little because we spend very little time thinking about them, very little time reading through them. And when we do think about them, we can find ourselves sometimes wondering, what is the relevance of this story, this situation, whether you're in Kings or Chronicles or 1 Samuel or Nehemiah or Esther like we're in right now, you can find yourself as you're reading through them kind of wondering, what is the relevance of this story to my life at this moment? We have a tendency of reading the scriptures through the lens of ourselves and our moment and our time and what does this say to me? And that's not really a bad question. In fact, I would say, it's the right question. Just what is 
the relevance of the Old Testament stories for my life, for your life? How do these things apply to us today? We should, when we study through the scriptures, be moving towards application. We want to observe what's in the text. We want to interpret in the right way what the text is saying and what it means. But then we also want to bring that into our moment and our time, 2021, if it were. And we want to see what does this say to me at this moment? What does God want to speak to us? Well, again, Paul says back in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, all of these things, and when Paul says all of these things, he's talking about the things that are there from Genesis to Malachi, the, the stories having to do with the children of Israel. Specifically in that passage, he's talking a lot about the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt to go to the promised land. He says, all these things happened to the children of Israel, and they are written as examples for us. They are written down for our learning, for our instruction. The, the New King James Version that I'm reading from, it says our admonition. And it says that it is for those upon whom the ends of the age have come. So the events, the stories of people like Moses, of people like Ehud in the book of Judges, of people like Esther in the book of Esther. These stories, the events that happened in their lives, these things are not just stories. They are histories. These things happened to the people of Israel and they were written and recorded for us. Now, how many of you think that we're living in the end of the age? A lot of people think that. I find that you, you see that a lot right now and all the things that are going on in the world, in the United States politically or with COVID and all this sort of stuff. People say, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the age. And so a lot of people think we're living in the end of the age. So if you think we're living in the end of the age, if you think that these are the last days, then these things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, they were written for our instruction, for our learning upon whom the end of the age has come. They're recorded as examples for us. Now, get this, that's not the only thing that Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says all these things were written for our admonition and instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. He goes on and he continues in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 12. He says there, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then this, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, with the test, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Have you ever hubristically, arrogantly thought, I've got this. I, I can handle this situation, this temptation, this trial, this test. I can handle this. I've got this. Well, Paul would say, take heed. Be careful. Be cautious when you get into that place of thinking, I've got this. I, I know what's going on. Or have you ever been tempted to wish someone harm? Like I asked at the very beginning of this message just a few minutes ago, have you ever been so angry with someone that you were tempted to be malicious, to wish harm upon them? Have you ever been tempted to wish someone harm? That's pretty common. Those are temptations that are common to man. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 13. And so these things in the Old Testament, like the book of Esther that we've been studying through, these things have been written for our instruction, our admonition, so that we would be cautious when we arrogantly think, I can handle this sort of thing. Or when we are tempted, when we're going through temptations, trials, tests, we need to realize that God has written these things for our learning to prepare us to equip us 
to be able to be perseverant, to endure through those situations. So a few weeks ago, we began this study in the Old Testament book of Esther. And I'm really grateful for Pastor Jason a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mark last week have taken us through Esther chapter one, Esther chapter two. And many of you have probably been tempted to think that this book, the book of Esther, has little value or relevance, especially as this book doesn't mention God once. I know that Pastor Jason mentioned that, Pastor Mark mentioned that. The book of Esther is a unique book in scripture because there is no explicit mention of God by name or his active working in the story. But if you look underneath the surface, as we're gonna continue to do over the next several weeks as we go through this book, you can see God working even if it's not explicitly mentioned in the text. So there have been people throughout history who thought, well, the book of Esther is of little value, it's of little relevance. It shouldn't even be in the canon of scripture, the, the whole library of the Bible, the 66 books. Some people thought this book shouldn't be in here because, well, God's not explicitly mentioned in there, but we're gonna see God working in this passage. So the last two weeks, pastors Jason and Mark, they've introduced us to some of the characters of this book. First, of course, is King Ahasuerus. And then there was Queen Vashti in chapter one. You may have already forgotten her because they moved on from Queen Vashti when things weren't quite going the way that the king wanted things to go. So we met King Ahasuerus, we met Queen Vashti, and then we met Hadessa, or that is Esther. And then of course, Mordecai. And today I'm gonna to introduce you to another very important character, someone who's gonna become very central to this story in the book of Esther as we go on over the next several weeks. And one of the things that is going to become clear as you get to know this new character is that there is an unnamed character behind this character. In much the same way that we've already said in the last couple of weeks that God is seen, his hand, his work is seen, sovereignly working in the book of Esther, but God is not named, he's not explicitly revealed in this passage. Well, there's another character that appears in the book of Esther behind the character that we're going to meet today that is not explicitly named, that is not clearly revealed, but there's something going on behind the scenes that we're going to see. So here's one of the keys to remember when you're reading through this book of Esther. Though God is not named or mentioned explicitly when reading the book of Esther, you will see him and his working if you look closely. And we're gonna see that as we go through these chapters. But in the very same way, there is another character that isn't named explicitly when you are reading through this book, but you're gonna see his working and I'm gonna say his as well. In the last two weeks, as you were introduced to King Ahasuerus and Vashti and Esther and Mordecai, you were told about Vashti's fail, her fall, and then Esther's rise. And now we read this, Esther chapter three, verse one, after these things. Now, I can't even go further than those first three words. I gotta stop right there. After these things. Now, you may have noticed, those are the very same words. If you just turn one page to the left, those are the same words that started chapter two, after these things. So when we come to chapter three, some time has gone by. When you came to chapter two, some time had gone by. Chapter one, you had the fall of Vashti. And then after these things, four years after these things, you don't see it in the text necessarily. You have to do a little bit of deduction and looking at the dates that are mentioned in chapter one and chapter two. 
But what you find is that the events of chapter 1 happen with the fall of Vashti. Four years passes. And then you have the rise of Esther. And so after the, the fall of Vashti in chapter 1, we had chapter 2 and the rise of Esther. But now, after the rise of Esther, another five years has passed. We've gone from the time when Esther is brought up, raised up to be queen, and now five years goes by, and we read, after these things. So there's a lot that's been going on. We move from one major event to another major event, the, the fall of Vashti, the rise of Esther, and now five years passes, and we come to this. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Again, I have to stop right there. I can't. I can't go any further than those words. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. It is very easy to overlook what sometimes looks to us to be a very little thing, especially after really big things happen. But the things you realize is that these little things end up oftentimes being actually quite big. It was a kingdom rattling happening when Vashti was removed. It shook the world of that day. If they would have had CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, all these different things at that time, the headlines on every single news thing, the, the chirons running at the bottom of the screen, 24-hour news cycle, they would have been talking about what happened with Vashti there in Shushan at the palace, what we read in chapter one. It was a kingdom rattling happening when Vashti was removed from her position as queen. It shook the world. But as is often the case, you have a massive political shaking, a kingdom shaking, and four years goes by and people move on. A lot of things happen. In fact, if you study the history around this time, you know that there were a lot of things that were happening in and around Persia. And King Ahasuerus was involved in some pretty big major events that we don't even read about in this passage. But the people moved on. They moved on from that 24-hour news cycle about Vashti being removed, and the kingdom starts going along. It's amazing how quickly that can happen when all of a sudden we have what we call a new normal. We have been through a, a world-shaking event the last year and a half. We've all experienced this, and there will come, even though I, I hate the terminology, I'm sure you're probably sick of it already by now, there will become a point where we have kind of a new normal, people set into new routines, and we move away from that kingdom-shattering sort of thing. And then there was another kingdom-stirring happening when Esther was raised up as queen. Again, all the chirons were running 24 hours a day, if they would have had CNN there in Persia at that time. And then they raise up, a new queen after this whole beauty pageant thing that Pastor Mark talked about last week. And then time goes by. And now five years has passed. She's been the queen, the chosen queen for five years. And now something more happens in the story. And something that could be easily passed over. It's, it's seemingly inconsequential. This event that happens as we read here in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Haman may not seem like much when you just read those opening words. His name means magnificent. So there must have been something about this guy, Haman, that, that stood out. He 
probably thought himself to be pretty awesome. In fact, as you look at him, Mr. Haman, the self-promoter in the book of Esther, you can find out he thought he was pretty good. He loved himself pretty well, and uh, he thought he was pretty awesome, put himself forward as pretty amazing. His name means magnificent. I mean, he's awesome. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. It is very easy to overlook little things that are actually really big things. Haman the Magnificent, he was an Agagite. Now, that right there is one of the reasons that I think it is so important that we become the kind of people who simply read through the text of the Old Testament. And on that point, I just want to encourage you, if you've never read from Genesis to Malachi, I know that for some people, it's like they try, they say, I'm going to start the year off right. I'm going to read through the whole of the Bible. They go through Genesis. They're feeling pretty good through the 50 chapters. And then they get to Exodus. They're feeling pretty good. They make it all the way through the 45 chapters, I think it is. And then they get to Leviticus. And it's like, really? Things kind of slow down, gets a little challenging. If you can make it to like Kings and Chronicles and all the different begats, he begat who so-and-so and this begat this person and so forth, the, the genealogies of Chronicles. If you can get through that, it, it's a really important thing to read through the text of scripture. And that simple reference that Haman was an Agagite is one of the reasons why I think it's really important to simply read through the Old Testament because that word Agagite, which is so easy to overlook. It is actually a really important key to this story. And not just to this story, but to history. And history that's happening right now. Because the history of this Haman who was an Agagite, I, I want to suggest to you that it continues. It keeps going. So what on earth is an Agagite? And why does it matter? Or why should I even care about that? Well, to answer that, I have to tell you uh, another story that has nothing to do with the book of Esther, at least as you first look at it. You're going to find that it does have something to do with Esther as you go through it. So to answer the story, what on earth is an Agagite and why does it matter or even should it matter, then we need to go back to another story that happened or rather it started nearly 1,500 years before Esther, all the way back in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, go back to Genesis chapter 25. And when you get there, remember this, what I shared with you from Paul in 1 Corinthians just a little bit ago. All these things happened to them as examples for us, and they were written for our instruction and learning. In Genesis chapter 25, we are brought back to the story of a guy named Jacob and Jacob's brother Esau. Jacob and Esau, or maybe I should say Esau and Jacob, they were the twin sons of a man named Isaac. They were the twin grandsons of a man named Abraham. And Abraham is a central and important figure in world history, not just in the Bible. He is a central and important figure in the three monotheistic religions of the world because Jews, Christians, and Muslims all look back to Abraham. They all look back to the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. These are very important central figures. And in Genesis chapter 25, we're brought all the way back to the story of Esau and Jacob, the twin sons of Isaac, the twin grandsons of Jacob. Esau was the older twin. And of course, Jacob was 
the younger twin. And in ancient times, you probably know this, far more so than now, the birthright, the birth order, and the seniority of birth order was extremely important. But if you've ever read the book of Genesis, then you know that from before Esau and his twin brother Jacob were born, they had a bitter sibling rivalry. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 25. While they were still in the womb, it appears that there was like a battle going on between these two important individuals, Esau and Jacob. And this sibling rivalry even plays into the very name Jacob. The very name Jacob was given to Jacob because of this rivalry. When Esau was born, he was the first one to come out of the womb. And he was red, the Bible says, and hairy. Red and hairy. So they named him Esau, which actually means hairy. And Harry's nickname was Edom, which actually means red. So they just said, we're going to call him Harry because he's hairy. We're going to give him a nickname, Edom, because he's red. So the hairy red one, Esau, he came out of the womb first. But when he did, his younger brother's hand, Jacob's hand, was holding on to Esau's heel. And so they looked at Harry, who was hairy and red. They said, we're going to call you Harry. We're going to call you Edom for short, because you're red. And they looked at this other child who came out holding on to his brother's heel. They said, we're going to call you Jacob, which means heel catcher or supplanter. And my, what an appropriate name that ends up being for this guy named Jacob. Harry grew up hairy, and he was, the Bible says in Genesis 25, a man of the field. And Jacob, the Bible says, grew up smooth-skinned, and he was a mild man, as the scriptures say. And Harry was the favorite of his father. And the old tent-dwelling, smooth-skinned Jacob was, for lack of a better way of saying it, he was a mama's boy. And Isaac, Genesis chapter 25, says that Isaac, Esau and Jacob's father, Isaac loved Esau because Esau was a hunter. But Rebekah, Esau and Jacob's mom. She, the Bible says, she loved Jacob. So you have this bitter sibling rivalry between Esau and Jacob. And Esau is daddy's boy. And Jacob is mama's boy. And you've got this problem. And years later, when they were grown up, the story of Genesis tells us that Jacob, the younger one, the heel catcher, Jacob deceptively stole his brother's birthright. And not just the birthright, but the blessing of the birthright. He deceptively stole that from his brother Esau. And his father, through deception, you'll have to read the story in Genesis chapter 25 and 26 and 27 and see exactly how it came to pass. But there was some deception that went on from this heel catcher to deceive his father to get the blessing in Genesis chapter 27. And after this happened, after Jacob steals the birth order blessing from his brother, we find this in Genesis chapter 27, looking at verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, and then I will kill my brother. What, what Esau says is when dad dies, you're dead. This is what he says in his own heart. Esau looks at the deception of his brother Jacob, and he hates him. And he says, as soon as dad is dead, I'm not going to do it until dad's dead because it just wouldn't be right. But as soon as dad's dead, you're done. I'm going to kill you. That's what he had promised himself in his heart. So seemingly little things sometimes have really big ramifications. 
Let me say that again. Seemingly little things sometimes have really big ramifications. Esau is swindled out of his birthright. And, and there was all kinds of problems with Esau. Don't, don't get me wrong. Jacob wasn't the only problem in this whole situation. You have to read the story of Genesis to see all the problems with Esau. He had a lot of problems as well. But Jacob steals the birthright from his brother. And there is a hatred. There is an animosity that begins to be kindled in the heart of Esau. And he says, I hate Jacob. And one day, I'm going to get back at him. Now, there is so much to say about this, but I really don't have the time because we're actually studying through the book of Esther, and here I am in the book of Genesis. So I'd love to get into this, but I can't. I'm just going to give you the fast pass flyover on this whole situation. Esau hated Jacob, and he pledges in his heart, I'm going to kill him one day. But he didn't do it. If you read through the rest of Genesis, it seems like, well, maybe over time he decided that wasn't what he was going to do. You know, decades pass, and that doesn't happen. But the animosity and the hatred, those things remain because there's something deeper than just the story of Esau and Jacob going on. There's something going on beyond this sibling rivalry. It's much, much bigger than just a sibling rivalry that between two brothers. There's something underneath the surface, something unnamed, something not explicitly seen in the realm of humanity, but it manifests. It manifests in this hatred between Esau and Jacob. So Esau and Jacob, they, they part ways for about 20 years. And while they are parted from one another, they both start families and they have multiple wives. The Bible's just reporting, not endorsing these situations, but they have multiple wives and they have lots of kids. And one of the children, this is really important, one of the children of Esau, we read about him in Exodus chapter 36. This is Years later, after Jacob and Esau have parted ways, after Jacob has stolen the birthright from Esau, Genesis chapter 36 tells us that one of the descendants of Esau, one of the chief sons of Esau, was a man named Amalek. Amalek. Now, like I said, I'm, I'm skipping a lot. There's a whole bunch that goes on in the story of Genesis that I'm not going to be able to talk about today. But although there's a lot that I'm overlooking, it's all part of this big plot. Centuries later, hundreds of years after Esau, after Jacob, the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob, they have become not just a few, they have become tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. The descendants of Jacob become the children of Israel because God changes Jacob's name to Israel. I believe it's in Genesis chapter 32. And the descendants of Esau, they multiply and they grow great. And the descendants of Jacob, Israel, they multiply and they grow great. The descendants of Israel, they end up as slaves in Egypt. You know this story if you've read through Genesis and Exodus, because Exodus is the story of the descendants of Jacob, Israel. They're down in Egypt and they become a great nation. Hundreds of years pass and they're slaves in Egypt until God, through Moses, delivers them. You remember Moses goes to Pharaoh in Egypt and says, let my people go. And Moses is the deliverer that God uses to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. But while Israel is traveling in the wilderness, headed from Egypt to the promised land, after their exodus from Egypt, we're told in Exodus chapter 17, this is like immediately following them leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and the Egyptian army being destroyed. And then they come into the wilderness. They're on their way from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they're going to get the law from God during that period. Exodus chapter 17 says that the children of Israel, as they traveled to Mount Sinai, they were attacked. They were attacked by a group of people 
and the people that came out to attack them, they are related to Jacob, descendants of Esau. Look at this. Exodus chapter 17 tells us this story, verse 1, about these people coming out to attack the children of Israel. It says, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in a place called Rephidim, Amalek, the descendants of Esau. Esau, hundreds of years ago, he said in his heart, when dad's dead, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. But he doesn't do it. But that animosity, that hatred, which you have to know, he was sharing with his kids and his grandkids about, man, your uncle Jacob, he's a swindler, he's a bad guy. We've got to get him someday. Now, hundreds of years have passed. The children of Israel are coming out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the, the uh, wilderness land coming to Mount Sinai. And Amalek came and fought against Israel. And Israel was nearly overcome, but for the mighty power of God. And when this battle was over, we read this in Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. They, they fought victoriously against Amalek. And we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, right after the battle between Amalek and Israel in Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book of the recount of the hearing of Joshua. That I, God says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's a powerful thing. The Lord will have battle, war, conflict with Amalek from generation to generation. Why will there be a perpetual battle between Israel, the people of God, and Amalek? What is going on? It's not just an earthly family feud, a sibling rivalry. There's something more to this story. There's something more than meets the eye. There's something going on under the surface that's unnamed, that's not explicitly clear. Decades later, after Exodus chapter 17, after the children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years, as the children of Israel are preparing to go into the promised land, before we started Esther, months ago, we've been studying through the book of Deuteronomy. I know I put that on pause. Someday we're going to get back to it. But there in the book of Deuteronomy, as the children of Israel were getting ready to come into the promised land, Moses speaks to the children of Israel. And he says this, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Note this, Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember, Israel, what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Remember what happened in Exodus 17. How he, the people of Amalek, met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers, the slow, older people. All the stragglers that were at the rear of the camp when you were tired and weary and Amalek, he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess as an inheritance. When you are resting in the promised land, years from now, Moses says, you need to remember this, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, I know by this time, you are wondering, what on earth does this have to do with the book of Esther? We're, we're not in the book of Genesis. We're not in the book of Exodus. We're not in the book of Deuteronomy. We're in the book of Esther. What does this have to do, this whole story about Jacob and Esau and Amalek and Amalek flight, fighting against the children of Israel, Moses telling them that you're going to destroy them one day when you have rest in the promised land. What does this have to do with Esther? Well, just wait. We're getting there. Finally, hundreds of years later, 
after Moses has spoken to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy outside the promised land, after they come into the promised land under Joshua, after they begin to take possession of the promised land under Joshua and then the judges, hundreds of years later, the children of Israel have rest in the promised land, just as God had said through Moses in Genesis or Deuteronomy chapter 25. They have rest in the promised land and they ask God for a king and God reluctantly grants their request. And he gives them their first king. This story is told in the book of 1 Samuel. The children of Israel, they say, we want a king. And so God reluctantly gives them a king named Saul. And God gives Saul, the, new, the newly established king of Israel, he gives him his first mission. And his first mission is given to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God is speaking through a judge and a prophet whose name is Samuel. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Verse one, Samuel also said to Saul, King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, Saul, you're, you're the king of Israel. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, I know this is one of those passages that causes people in 2021 and the 21st century to have all kinds of issues and problems. Not going to get into that day. We've talked about that before in Deuteronomy. We'll come to that another time. But there is something going on that has been going on for literally hundreds of years between Jacob and Esau, and the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel, and the descendants of Esau, Edom, and the people of Edom, Amalek, have risen up, and they fought against the children of Israel. And it's not just an earthly thing, just an earthly conflict, a family feud. That's just the earthly manifestation. There's something else going on. And so now the children of Israel have rest in the promised land, just as God foretold that they would. And God says to their newly ordained king, you're going to go, and you're going to fulfill what Moses had said, 400 years before, and you're going to destroy the Amalekites. But if you've ever read 1 Samuel chapter 15, then you know that Saul, the first king of Israel, he did not obey the voice of God. And that actually led to his undoing. And the passage tells us that he spared the best of what Amalek had to offer. And not only did he spare the best, but he also spared their king. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 tells us that the name of the king of Amalek that King Saul spared was, wait for it, Agag. Agag was the king. There is so much more to this story. But I hope you're beginning to see the through line. People say the book of Esther has no relevance. It shouldn't be in the Bible. It's of little value. God is not mentioned. And why, why would we read it in 2021? What, what purpose does this book have for us? But there is so much more to this story. And I hope that you're seeing this through line. Seemingly little things sometimes have really big ramifications. And after these things, Esther chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. And... King Ahasuerus advanced Haman, the Agagite, and set him on a seat above all the princes who were with him. 
And verse 2 says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. So the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who you met back in chapter 2, Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. All of the king's people, Haman is lifted up. He is the prince over Persia, just under the king. He's an advisor to the king and numero uno. And everybody bows. The king commanded, when you see Haman, you need to bow to the Agagite. But Mordecai, he wouldn't bow. He wouldn't pay homage. So I ask you the question I asked you at the very, very beginning of this message. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you wished them harm? Well, verse 3, then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? The king has said, Mordecai, we all need to bow. And he's not doing it. And all the other people around Mordecai, they say, Mordecai, why, why aren't you bowing to Haman when he comes through here? You have to bow. You've got to follow the king's command. But why wouldn't Mordecai just bow? What's the problem? Just give honor to this guy who the king has honored. Why won't you bow to him? It's an easy thing. It's not a big deal. Why won't Mordecai bow to Haman? Because Haman is an Agagite, a distant, very far removed cousin to Mordecai. He's an Amalekite. And there's a whole lot of history there. There's a whole lot more going on there than what we just see when we read those words. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. We just read that so quick. We just pass over these seemingly insignificant, very little things, but they are not seemingly insignificant. They're not insignificant. They might seem so. There is no little thing. There is a huge thing here in this passage. And it's not just an earthly thing. There is a spiritual thing going on here. Underneath the surface of the story of Esther is something unnamed, not explicitly evident. Underneath the story of Esther is the story of, shall we say, a cosmic battle between God and the enemy of God. One that we often identify with terms like Satan or the devil or Lucifer. Go, go through the scriptures. You find all these different ways in which there is an enemy of God who is fighting against God. The one who deceived the people of God, the earliest people of God, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, there is this battle that goes on throughout the scriptures. There is a cohesive story going from Genesis to Revelation. And we see this happening underneath the story of Esther is a story of this cosmic battle between God, who's not named, who's not explicitly seen, and the devil, who's not named, who's not explicitly seen. There is so much more here. Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 4. There we read, now it happened when the servants of the king spoke to Mordecai daily, and Mordecai would not listen to them, that the servants of the king, they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew, and he's not going to bow to this Agagite. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him honor and homage, Haman was filled with wrath. So again, I ask you, have you ever been so angry with someone that you wished them harm. And this seems like an incredibly small thing to be so angry about. But now, after the servants of the king bring it to Haman's, I guarantee Haman probably never noticed. When all the people were bowing, he probably never noticed that, that Mordecai was not bowing. 
But now Haman can't see anything but Mordecai. He can't see the dozens and hundreds and probably thousands of people who are bowing before him everywhere he goes. People are bowing and paying him homage. He can only see the one that isn't. And he is filled with wrath. Why is he filled with wrath? I would be willing to bet that, that Haman doesn't even know the answer to that question because there's something more going on below the surface. If you were to ask him, Haman, why are you so mad about this? Everybody else is bowing to you. It's, it's no big deal. Why are you so mad about this one guy, Mordecai, this, this Jewish guy? What's it matter to you? But Haman is filled with wrath and he can't understand. He probably can't articulate why he's so mad. But Haman is not a fool. Well, he's kind of a fool. We'll see later on. But he is calculatingly cunning. So he has the authority. He has the power as the second in command, just below the king Ahasuerus. He has the, he has the ability to force this man Mordecai to bow. But he decides something different. Look at this. Ex, um, Esther chapter 3, verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. I'm not just going to get Mordecai. I, I got something much more devious, much more cunning that I'm going to accomplish. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai, the Jews, instead. So Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, honestly, do you think that Haman came up with this devilish thought on his own? I suggest to you that this wasn't something that Haman came up with on his own. Sure, it, it, it came to the mind of Haman that I'm not just going to get Mordecai. I'm going to get every single one of his people. It came to his mind, but I don't think he came up with that on his own. Many of the biggest things in this world are happening because of things that are beyond this world, things that we don't see. The manifestation of those things happens here in the realm of humanity where we see these things, but there are things that are happening under the surface. Why is there such an animosity? Why is there such a hatred for the Jewish people? Why has it been that way in that place for centuries, not just centuries, millennia? Do you really think that this is just an earthly thing. Verse 8, Esther chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. They don't bow to me. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they, these people, may be destroyed, and I will pay. I'm going to pay for it. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring, about, bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring off from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script. And every people in their language 
in the name of the king Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel, so that the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Have you ever been perplexed by this animosity, this hatred, this disdain for the Jewish people. I want to suggest to you that it is a conspiracy beyond this world. There's something more to this story. It's not just about Abraham. It's not just about Ishmael and Isaac. It's not just about Jacob and Esau. It's not just about the children of Israel and the children of Am Amalek. It's not just about Saul and Agag. It's not just about Mordecai and Haman or Esther. There's something more that's going on here. And even though you sometimes don't see God explicitly named, you don't see his title, you don't see him coming through the clouds, if you will, there's still something going on behind the scene. And even if you don't see explicitly or named this devilish spirit in the pages of scripture, there's something going on. It's a conspiracy that's beyond this world. But to look at what goes on, you have to come back next time. Father God, I pray that you would cause us to have a, a hunger to look into these things. And Lord, maybe even to begin to understand as we look around the world and the things that are happening in our world, even at this very moment, the geopolitical things that happen in this world. And sometimes we scratch our head and we go, why is there this animosity between so many people and the Jewish people and so many people and Christian people. What is all of this about? Ultimately, God, there's something going on. And even though some people look at the world and they don't see you explicitly, they don't see you named or your hand coming through, there's still something going on and you are working and you are moving and you're doing something. But there's also, there's an enemy, an adversary that is fighting against your work. And I pray, God, that as we study through the remaining chapters of Esther, that we would begin to be aware in a way that maybe we haven't been before about these things that are happening. And we begin to have an understanding about what all this is all about. And we begin to recognize that you are doing a work that you want us to be involved in, just like you were doing work 2,500 years ago at the time of Esther, that you were calling her to be involved in. And as we're going to see coming up in the next chapters, that she has a choice to make about whether or not she's going to step into that and be involved in it, to be a part of what you're doing, even though she's not sure and not entirely certain that you're going to come through and that you're going to work. She is put in that place of choosing whether or not she's going to step in and, and be involved. And Lord, we are in that place right now. How are we going to step into this for such a time as this? God, Lord, give us a, a passion to look into these things and to understand that, that these things that happened 2,500 years ago, they have application and implications on what's happening today. And there's a further work that you're doing right now that you want us to be involved in. And I pray, God, that you would stir us to step into that and to take hold of that. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>